Hey everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Biosplaining podcast. Today we're talking to Todd Harwell. Todd is a PhD student at Oregon State University who's doing really important work studying the representation of LGBTQ plus slash queer people in the citizen and community science space. I first came across Todd when I was looking through the newsletter of the AAAS. The AAAS is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and they publish Science Journal, which is arguably the first or second best scientific publication in the world. So I came across Todd's work in this newsletter, and I thought it was so interesting and so relevant and so appropriate because it was June and Pride Month. And I was really fascinated by this idea of scientific identities because I want to help people understand and appreciate science as much as I do. And Todd was here doing work in understanding how LGBTQ plus and queer people are identifying as scientists through these citizen science projects. So in the following first part of this conversation, we're going to talk about a number of really important points, including the importance of giving your kids stuffed animals to help ignite their creativity and curiosity in science. We're going to talk about the importance of developing scientific identities and the reliance on external recognition to help develop those identities. We're going to talk about the importance of authenticity in research, which is something you don't talk about very often, both in terms of doing research that is authentic to you, but also being your authentic self as part of being a researcher. And lastly, we talk about a really unfortunate but sort of not surprising situation where Todd discusses the fact that queer researchers are not seen as being underrepresented in the scientific community simply because that type of data is not collected by national funding agencies. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Easter eggs include me saying the words, that's fantastic, probably one million times. Again, I'm still new to podcast hosting and interviewing, so I'm hoping to firm that up and make it a lot more enjoyable for you guys. Todd is an amazing speaker. He's got a great stage presence and podcast presence. He should probably be hosting this damn thing instead of me. So I really appreciate all of you listening and for Todd for being such an amazing guest. Here we go. Here we go. So my name is Todd Harwell, I use he, him pronouns, and I'm currently a PhD candidate at Oregon State University. Uh, I'm in the environmental sciences program, um, but my research is actually more in kind of informal STEM engagement. Uh, specifically, I'm researching uh, how uh, citizen and community science uh, contributes to developing science identities as well as community of participants or volunteers that engage with these projects. Uh, and I'm keenly interested in the experiences of LGBTQ plus uh, folks that engage with uh, these opportunities to kind of, you know, dive into the relationships between queer and STEM identities based mm -hmm. on involvement in these experiences and then sense of community and belonging, um, you know, among volunteers versus like within the queer community and kind of the interplay between those. This is fantastic. Also, because it's like last day of Pride Month, this is perfect. Pro I, this wasn't planned, but uh, maybe you know, <laughs> it was It was all somehow manifested through our collective, like, you know, queer unconscious or something. That's amazing. Yeah. So, how, so how did you get involved in the area of citizen or community science? Actually, sorry, first, one question I did have for you that I that I sent you is that could you clarify the maybe difference between like citizen science and community science? Because I feel like I'm using them interchangeably and that's potentially not correct. Yeah, so citizen science versus community science, it's actually kind of like a, a hot topic in 
the field um, and kind of has been, especially more recently. Um, so I, personally, I prefer citizen and community science or CCS um, because uh, to me, there is a difference between citizen versus community science. So um, essentially, generally, I consider citizen science to be um, opportunities for anyone and everyone to participate in and contribute to scientific research. Um, that can, you know, look like a bunch of different things from collecting and contributing data to um, doing field activities to collecting samples uh, uh, to just like photo identification online of different species. Um, whereas uh, community science, uh, I think, is a little bit more um, bottom up versus top down. So that those are projects initiated by communities um, based on community need and community interests that leverage science to help them tackle community level issues. Um, so yeah, citizen science, you know, it can be led by anyone. It can be a researcher, an institution, a group, whereas community science is coming from a specific community. And in community science, is it common for that scientific work to be conducted by an army of citizen scientists or is it or is it sort of up for grabs in the sense that it could be citizen scientists or it could be maybe more academic researchers but the important thing is that's all like led by the community motivation yeah exactly that's the heart of it is it's serving community needs um but the community members are kind of driving it they may engage like academic researchers but you know, it's not research to satisfy the researcher, it's research to benefit the community. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Thank <laughs> you for that. Yeah. 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 Okay, so like, so let's talk, a, let's talk a little bit about your origin story. I always like using that term because I feel like it's very MCU. I don't even know if I could say that actually. Um, <laughs> copyright restrictions. It's very superhero <laughs> Uh, okay. So I, I would love to know how you arrived at, at this point where you are now, where you're doing this really cool research into community and citizen science. Yeah, so my story is kind of all over the place, if I'm being honest. Um, but I will say the roots of it all come from being a seven-year-old growing up in uh, Georgia, southern United States. Um, and one Christmas, Santa Claus brought me a stuffed manatee. Mm. And I just, I became obsessed uh, with manatees and decided I wanted to be a marine biologist and save the manatees. <laughs> so that's incredible. Yeah, that, that one gift from Santa <laughs> is what got me hooked on a, a career in science and a life engaging in science. So, so let it be known to the audience that if you want to encourage your kids to get into anything, get them any sort of stuffed toy, uh, mm -hmm. And now they make stuffed toys about everything. I was I was gifted a stuffed microbe once as kind of a practical joke, which I'll get into <laughs> later. And I mean, if I wasn't already in grad school, maybe I would have become a microbiologist. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so can I ask you uh, just a follow-up question? Because so I uh, right now I'm in Toronto. I was born and raised here, so I'm from the Great Lakes area. Marine biology is not my strong suit, as I'm a <laughs> freshwater person. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people know, including myself, know of manatees because they're basically adorable. Um, mm -hmm. But what what is sort of the, the ecological role or what is important about manatees to the ecosystem that requires them to be saved? And I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't, but I just want to learn more about why manatees are important. 
Yeah, so um, manatees, I mean, they're super charismatic, just huge marine mammals. Um, they're so lovable and slow, um, but you know, they, they don't have any natural predators. It's, it's human activity that is, has been causing their demise. Um, recreational boaters is probably the number one but uh, yeah, manatees, they, they're grazers. So they really help with uh, seagrass beds um, and they can also live in uh, brackish water. So they can, you know, be in more freshwater systems, saltwater systems. Um, so they help kind of uh, maintain the vegetation and keep areas from being overgrown. Awesome. Okay, awesome, great. Thank you for that that sidebar about manatees. So, okay, so then you get the stuffed uh, the stuffed toy. You just go on to follow that pathway to be a marine biologist, and then and then what happens in your in your studies in that course of your career? Yeah, so I went to undergrad for marine science and biology. Um, during my studies, I I got a summer job at a marine biology summer camp, um, and I I just fell in love with getting people excited about science with, nice. you know, sharing my passion for science, especially in kind of experiential settings. Um, you know, my, my big thing is learning by doing. So hands-on feet wet science is uh, kind of like my, my jam and just kind of seeing young folks get so excited about it in that setting. I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to like get people engaged in science rather than just, be in a lab running samples and writing papers. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that kind of shifted me to um, a more education science engagement route. That's awesome. I, I can empathize because that's pretty much the reason I started this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. After, yeah. you know, so long after being in grad school, I, I still have that need to want people to care about science and just to realize how cool it is. Um, right. <laughs> which I think can be overwhelming for the general public, but, uh, but here we are talking about <laughs> engagement. So this is, this is awesome. Okay. Yeah. So then you've, you've done all this work, you've done this research. And then at what point do you start to, uh, realize that maybe there's a representation issue around the LGBTQ plus community? Uh, yeah. So I guess early on in my like PhD study, starting my doctoral program, you know, I didn't, start a PhD knowing this is what I was going to research. Um, but in, in one of my earliest classes uh, with a, a research methods class, um, something that one of my professors uh, really harped on was like authenticity and, you know, having the work be authentic to the researcher and like acknowledging that, you know, research isn't just done in a bubble by robots. You know, there's a person behind the research yeah. that you're doing. And that just really stuck with me. And so I was thinking about, you know, how can I, you know, make it authentic to me, my identity, my community. Um, and so I had, I'm, I'm going to call it a Pride Month epiphany. Uh, <laughs> June, in June, uh, a few years ago, I, I found out about the 500 Queer Scientists kind of initiative, if you're familiar with that. I, no, no. Talk about another oh. Pride Month miracle. Here yeah. we go. So, yeah, there's kind of this like online network community. It's called 500 Queer Scientists. It started out. It started out. They just were hoping to get profiles of 500 queer scientists to like share to kind of you know um, that representation of queers in STEM. And so yeah, I stumbled upon that and was like, huh, like why not just look at you know queers engaging in STEM in informal ways? Um, and so like kind of stemming from my background in informal education, informal engagement, just kind of seemed like a natural fit. And I kept 
you know, asking questions and figuring out if it was worth looking into. And yeah, definitely is. <laughs> that's, in, that's, oh my gosh. Okay, so first of all, 500 career scientists, I'm gonna check that out immediately. But also yeah. like that's, that's so like, I feel also so seen. So like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a queer man, I'm a gay man. Uh, and uh, not that this episode was like my coming out episode, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but I want, but I, touching on what you said when the the quote from your professor about authenticity, like that hits so heavy for queer people because like mm -hmm. that's a huge word and idea that gets translated and transmitted across conversations about our authentic selves. Like that's a lot of right. times why people talk about coming out is like I just felt like I wasn't being my authentic self. I couldn't be my authentic self with my family or my coworkers, mm -hmm. and. That's so amazing that, uh, you know, this researcher who was your um, your mentor or your professor, sorry, I can't recall which one, is actually using that same terminology and advocating for that because we don't talk about that in research at all, regardless of like the queer conversation. We don't ever really talk yeah. about like being your authentic self in research. It's mostly about just like get the data so you can leave right. and you can publish and you can get out of here or something and not about whether or not what you're doing is really like resonating with yourself and, and your interests and Oh, that's like, that's super powerful. That's going to like keep me awake at night, I think. Yeah, it was, it was kind of groundbreaking for me too, you know, coming from uh, a more quote unquote hard science background or natural science background. And then now the work that I'm doing is way more social science. Um, and so I think, you know, having exposure to social science research methods and approaches like really kind of helped reshape my worldviews about mm -hmm. science and people's relationships with science as well as how I approach my own work. So yeah, I'm super grateful for that. That's fantastic. So when you talk about how it's reshaping your your sort of worldview around more hard, hard science against what sort of things have you have you found out? What have been the biggest like aha moments um, in your in your I guess research or the way that your your approach to research has changed? Sorry, I'm sort of on a brain blank right now. Have you have you found oh, no, anything interesting? Um, just kind of, you know, similar experiences from queer folks from like all walks of life in terms mm -hmm. of like their relationship with science. Um, you know, there, it's just, you know, if you're not, if you don't feel seen, like you're not going to pursue that career. So kind of right. like getting at the rep representation in STEM, um, it's, you know, the people I talk to, they, you know, either left STEM majors or never even considered majoring in STEM because it, it, they just felt like it wasn't for them, like as a queer person. Um, mm. they, they never had queer professors. It just, you know, seemed like it wasn't a welcoming environment. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was just looking at some of my data and, you know, I've got quotes from multiple participants being like, you know, science is rooted in cisgender heteronormative white male patriarchy like western yeah. canonical science and like that's not a really welcoming or inclusive environment so like yeah. why as a queer person would i put myself in kind of that uncomfortable space yeah um but interestingly like folks are saying you know engaging in citizen and community science is it, this is their time like this is their chance to engage in stem to be that scientist they thought they couldn't be, couldn't be. like I, I that's actually pretty close to like a quote a participant gave me and it just like gave me chills you know oh like, my gosh. Yeah, yeah 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 totally that's so that's so fascinating because like so to be perfectly honest when i read the article you were in you know a whopping two days ago um it's so interesting <laughs> for me because i'm a gay male and 
it was so interesting because I never had that perspective before. So I, mm. I feel like definitely representation is an issue like across society, right? And so I'm, I'm curious to talk to you about this because like I always sort of thought like, okay, I guess it makes sense that there's a lack of representation in citizen science because there's a lack of representation, sorry, representation of queer people across the board. And it's just like the same right. lack of representation. But then I also struggle with like this, this thought that like part of it is, is probably okay, there's not a lot of like, you know, out and visible queer people in sciences or STEM for people to look up to. Mm -hmm. But then also like, how much of it is also that like science is so insular and so like technically gated that it's like very intimidating for people. And so like one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I, 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 throughout my career, I've sort of had the opportunity to interact with like a whole bunch of different audiences, stakeholder groups, knowledge levels, et cetera. And it always seems like people have, like they start off like taking science in high school and then they maybe don't love it. So they drop it and take something else and then they never go back. Mm -hmm. And they just say like, right. I'm not a science person. I'm doing air quotes for the audience, um, yeah. right? So, and which is why when you mentioned science identities, I thought this was amazing because I think there's like this, this horrible synergism of like, there's not a lot of representation for queer people in STEM, but then also like mm -hmm. science itself does a really horrible job of like making it accessible to people. Because even if you have people that are so interested and passionate, like if they drop science after high school, like there's so much ground to cover in terms of understanding a lot of basic concepts that it a lot of times are just like, well, I'm not a scientist. And then that almost gives mm -hmm. them, I feel like it almost gives them agency to like buy into sort of the darker sides of scientific illiteracy because they're like, well, I'm not a science person. I don't know. Scientists will figure yeah. it out, right? And so like, yeah, I, I, I guess I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, how much of it is like a lack of representation and how much of it is like science just being like really bad at PR, so to speak? Um, I definitely think it's a combination of both, to be honest. You know, your, your kind of, your point about related to science identity and people just deciding they're not a science person and not going down that path, I guess. Um, not only is it that kind of like internal, not being able to see yourself as a scientist that mm -hmm. contributes to that, but it's also like how people recognize you if they see you as a science person. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of that, that kind of internal as well as external influences. So if you don't have, you know, other people telling you you can be a scientist or other people that look like you showing you that you can be a scientist, um, then yeah, you're definitely gonna feel like science is not for you. Um, right. So it's interesting, like in some of the research that I'm doing and looking at, um, it's, it's really important for uh, citizen and community science practitioners to reinforce to their participants, like you are scientists, you are doing science in order for the the volunteers themselves to be like, to kind of develop their science identities. Um, right. Cause they, they're still not gonna do it on their own. Just be like, oh, like they, they acknowledge they're doing science, but they're still like, oh, I'm not a scientist. I, right. I'm not a professional scientist. I didn't study science. Right. Um, so I feel like it didn't fully answer your question, but uh, yeah, I think it, it's definitely both that kind yeah. of, you know, the, the barriers of STEM in general, um, as well as kind of lack of representation. Um, Kind of along those same lines, something I just read today is that um, in the US, the NIH National Institute of Health, as well as the NSF National Science Foundation, don't consider LGBTQ plus folks as like underrepresented because they don't have any data. They can't track like how much of the STEM workforce 
identifies as LGBTQ plus. So they, in their minds, they're not underrepresented because they don't know who is representing. <laughs> um, so that I'm, just, again, kind of right now. reinforces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like not actually funny, but hilarious. It's just like, so yeah. literally like the absence of evidence is is mm -hmm. being used as the evidence of absence like that's awful well that means even that makes even more of a case for your work because now mm -hmm. you i'm sure you're going to have a lot of data that you can you can publicly share about how there are lack of representation situations in uh in stem but wow that's that's really unfortunate actually like who would have thought mm -hmm. who would have yeah uh, that's awful but i but I, I agree with what you're saying it's a very good point you made about how it's not just about having you know stem um, be more approachable for the queer community or LGBTQ plus community, but also like having that reinforced narrative to people in that community to give them the confidence to say like, no, actually, regardless of like what you think it takes to be a scientist, like you don't have to go mm -hmm. to school forever. You just have to be inquisitive and care, right? right? And and also like also label things properly. I think that's just a good thing to impart. On people, like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> also and also wash your dishes. Like just, just that's yeah. all you need. Like that's that's like our, the biosplaining guide to being a good citizen scientist. Just like label things properly. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's fantastic. And then I also wonder as well. Like so, how do you think there needs to be more work as well for um, for out queer scientists to be more more visible and more uh, taking more of like a maybe a mentorship role or just to make themselves available to other community science initiatives or other other people in the community? Uh, yeah, and I think I think, you know, it's it's getting there, you know, we're getting to a space where people are feeling more comfortable, like bringing aspects of their identity to the forefront of the work and like how they present their work, you know, and as an example, the 500 queer scientists I mentioned, you know, like initiatives like that, like, you know, showing people that there are queer folks in STEM. Um, and then that kind of opens the doors for uh, other queer folks to potentially um, engage in STEM careers, pursue studies, you know, what have you. Um, it's, but I also think it's, you know, the times we're living in, the kind of like shifting of the culture, like feeling safe to do so. Um, it's totally dependent on circumstances and context. Uh, but, you know, I think little by little, uh, we're, we're, we're getting to a space where um, it's, it's more comfortable for folks uh, and it's um, more accepted to be out in not just academia, but in industry as well. Um, and it's allowing people to kind of create um, professional queer communities in addition to their like personal uh, outside right. of the field queer communities. Right, right. That's awesome. I never thought of it that way, actually, like having the professional queer microbiologists of, mm -hmm. you know, of the US. That's, that's fantastic. That's really, really cool. So do you think there needs to be sort of similarly, like more safe spaces in academia, like sort of just formalized safe spaces on campuses or in labs? Like, should we be working to make labs like sort of formalized safe spaces in that regard? Um, 100%, I, I definitely think so. You know, just like, um, I'm not saying like all researchers, all faculty members should be queer folks, um, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, there are actions that can be taken to show, you know, up and coming queer scientists or students that you know, a space is safe for them to be their whole selves, to bring aspects of their identity to the work that they're doing. Um, 
I, I've had I've had some faculty members like ask me like why should I care about pronouns? Right. Um, right exactly. You know, like scientist, scientist, science. Like it's objective. Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, just by like assuming gender or refusing to acknowledge a person's pronouns that they use, like you're creating barriers. You're driving people away from science. You're reducing a diverse field and diverse workforce of like future science professionals. Yeah, and, and that sentiment is something that I've come across a lot, it, not about pronouns, but science, science is science. Science is, science is objective and it's always right. cold and calculating and it's, about, it's not about feelings and it's like, who are we kidding, right? I mean, science is done by people. Mm -hmm and machines, hopefully more machines in the future, like let's free some time. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, even, even speaking with some students and trying to get them more engaged in like telling their own narrative, um, discussing their purpose for, for reasons of like say PhD applications. And they're like, well, how do I talk about a purpose? Because it's all about science. It's like, no, <laughs> like there's, there's always narratives. There's always stories in, in how science develops and how experiments develops. And I think, I think it's, it's unfortunate that there's this idea that's perpetuated that like science isn't a place for feelings and science isn't a place for narrative or for you to be like a, you know, a fully fleshed out person with other non-lab related interests and in, in a social right. life, like what's that? So it's, it can be frustrating. And that actually leads to a question I was going to ask is like, what kind of, if any, have you gotten any sort of pushback from, from any sort of person or people or class of people in doing your research? Like what have been some, I guess, like interesting opposition findings? Yeah, fortunately, I haven't had um, any like negative or kind of, you know, direct uh, pushback to my work or, um, uh, you know, no uncomfortable encounters yet, no internet trolls in my inbox, <laughs> which is Oh, great. wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't say the same for like other queer STEM folks that I know, but um, yeah, just kind of that example I used before, I've gotten a few issues of that, of the, the why should I care, like kind of thing about like, you know, I don't care who you are, just like come in and like get your lab work done and like produce your results and, you know, write papers. Um, but again, like I, I think I, there's many issues with kind of that sort of perspective and approach. Mm -hmm. um, and then another interesting thing <laughs> that I've had people talk about, you know, I'm a grad student, a researcher, kind of like up and coming. And something that somebody pointed out to me is like, oh, like your research is great. It's super exciting, but you're never going to get funding for it. Like you're never going to get funding to like research queer engagement in citizen and community science. It's, it's like not fundable, which kind of going back to what I talked about before about NIH and NSF, like not looking at LGBTQ yeah. plus identities as underrepresented. Like, so um, that was an interesting thing somebody said to me, which, I mean, it doesn't deter me in any way. Like I'm again, going to involve myself in authentic work that I find meaningful, regardless of if it's fundable or not. But the, can I ask sort of like a personal question then? Like, did you end up getting sure. funding? Like, okay. Like, so like, were you able to get your research actually funded through NIH or, or any of that, or, or did you face difficulties in that? Um, I, I mean, I haven't pursued any kind of like big funding, uh, you know, supports. Uh, I've, you know, I've gotten like smaller funding awards for like, you know, to present at conferences and mm -hmm. things like that. But um, yeah, I haven't pursued any like large scale grants or anything like that. Um, 
but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, yeah, I hope it's not, I hope it wasn't like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But then again, like you have right. to blaze the trail in order to dry out like the, the, the lack of representation, which is still, it's not the lack of representation that's surprising. It's the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, those organizations don't deem it to be a problem because there's no data. Right. <laughs> Instead of just like assuming like the same inequality exists everywhere. everywhere. And that is a wrap for part one of my conversation with Todd Harwell doing amazing work investigating the role and participation of queer people in the citizen and community science space. If you'd like to get in touch, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Any feedback or comments or suggestions would be really appreciated. You can email us at biosplainingpodcast at gmail.com. That's B-I-O-S-P-L-A-I-N-I-N-G podcast at gmail.com. You can find me on LinkedIn at Ira Share, so I-R-A-S-H-E-R-R -R is my last name, and Twitter at Ira Share. On LinkedIn, I also write under Coach Bio if you find that easier to look up because my name is really phonetically bizarre to spell out. Music, edits, and everything to do with the audio of today's episode was done by the mighty Fred Brenton. The Biosplaining logo and visual identity was done by Gio Petrucci. Thank you so much for listening once again. Please like, subscribe, tell your friends, all that good stuff. And I hope to see you back here for part two of my conversation with Todd. Thanks a lot.